Good morning, church. As I approach the pulpit this morning, I have three emotions. I am nervous, I am excited, and I'm a little bit sad. I'm nervous because this morning at the 8 o'clock service, I learned the hard way that it's always good to have a, a glass of water ready at the pulpit. I had one of those terrible fitting coughs, the kind where everybody's cringing for you, you know? I had to stop and send Ben to get me some water, so I'm praying my, my throat holds up today. Um, I am excited because we're starting in the book of First Thessalonians. I'm really looking forward to studying this book together as a church, and we begin that journey today. I'm a little bit sad that there's only 50 of us in the, the room, a little bit sad at the, the current circumstances, but knowing that um, God will bless this time that we have. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians 1 from verse 1 to 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your precious word. We are grateful that we get to come together like this to study the Bible. We're grateful that you have spoken to us through it. And we ask again, expectantly, that you would build your church and glorify your name in our community through your word. We ask that you would build in us a hope, a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his holy name. Amen. One of my favorite moments in the whole Bible happens in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. And Luke describes there the situation. He says that it's midnight and pitch black darkness surrounds the characters of the story. But the darkness is more than just the darkness of the night. Because Paul and Silas are sitting in a crumpled heap deep in a Roman prison in the city of Philippi. They've been beaten with rods, the text says, with many blows. So bloodied, bruised, and bound by chains, they might be wondering, how did we get here? How did all of this happen? Well, it started, if you look at the map, across the Aegean Sea in the, the city of Troas. So you see there in the bottom corner there, Troas on the edge of what is Asia Minor, Paul and Silas had been busy there preaching the gospel in that region when in Troas, Paul has a, a vision. And in his vision, he sees a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was a, a Roman province, you can see there across the Aegean Sea. And Luke says that they concluded from this vision that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so that's what they did. They crossed the Aegean. 
they head straight for the city of Philippi, which was a major city, and they begin the work there, the, the gospel work in Europe. And fairly soon, the implications of the gospel set the missionaries at odds with the economic interests of the people in that city. And trouble comes. A mob rushes them. They want to tear them apart, and they're taken before the city leaders who order that they are, are beaten soundly. And then they're thrown into, it says, the deepest cell. And Acts 16.25 says it's midnight. So the dust has settled after the sound beating, and they've had time to think. What would have been going through their minds? Does Silas say to Paul, Paul, are you, are you sure that it was a Macedonian man that you saw in your vision? Are you sure that the vision was from the Lord? I, I don't know, Silas. I'm not sure anymore. What did we have for lunch that day? I mean, that's, that's us, right? When we have opposition and trouble in Christian work or in gospel ministry, when doors start slamming shut in our faces, God, I, I, th I thought this was your will. I went forward thinking that you would bless this. Why am I in prison? What's going wrong? Why is this difficult? No. When literal prison doors are shut in their faces, they're beaten and bloodied and bruised, and midnight comes around in their battered state. I love this passage. It says they begin praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Great trial and, and opposition are not to be unexpected in gospel work, in kingdom work. And their calling is not switched off just because of it. They are forced out of the city of Philippi. And what do they do? Do they reevaluate their life decisions? Well, you know, we, we gave it a try and it, it didn't work out. Let's, let's go home. No, they, they don't do that. You bring that map up again. They carry on. They go west along the Via Ignatia, an important Roman road through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They come to another major city. They carry on with the work. They go on, pouring themselves into the same ministry. Their hope is undiminished. They still have hope in the power of the gospel. They, they have hope that it will do what God promised that it would do. They have hope undiminished in a faithful one who's sufficient in their beatings, stronger than their opposition. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a promise that they're building their lives upon. When you're taken captive by the grace and the goodness of Jesus so that His commission to go into all the world and make disciples becomes the very purpose of your life. You find yourself in the state where you are facing trouble from time to time for sure, but you are building your life on a promise that no power of opposition can shake. And you've attained a calling that comes with no diminishing of returns on your investments. We live in a time that where people are concerned about their investments and diminishing returns. We live in a time where it is challenging to be involved in church ministry 
We'll be honest about it. It's challenging what's, what's going on in these days. And in this time, I believe the story of this new and fledgling church in Thessalonica is going to be an important story in the life of HBC. As we're introduced to this church today, I just want us to, to see that the hope that Paul holds up for the church, for them and for us. We have three headings today. The first is this. We see and we're going to meet a church planted through gospel faith, as we see the background. And secondly, a church rooted in gospel grace, as we see Paul's greeting to them. And finally, going forward, a church sustained by gospel hope. Number one, Thessalonians, a church planted through gospel faith. Thessalonica, if you bring up that next map, Wendy, is an important city. They're a port city along that Via Ignatia. It was a, a major trade route that ran east to west at the top there, the north of the Aegean Sea. The population of the city was between 100 and 200,000. It was surrounded by fertile farmland, uh, and there was a great mining industry and a good fish industry as well. Miletius, the ancient writer, said, So long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will, will remain wealthy and fortunate. As a city, they held a, a privileged status in the Roman Empire. Under the Roman banner of rule, they were a free city. Few cities shared this privilege. Other cities like Jerusalem had to deal with Roman occupying forces and a, a government enforced upon them. The Thessalonians enjoyed freedom from military occupation and they were able to a large degree to control their own affairs and political situations. They had their own elected officials. There was less taxation for them, which meant greater wealth. And so many people in the city, the prevailing view in the city was this pride in this privileged status in the Roman Empire. And that's what Paul walks into. Following his custom, Paul goes straight to the synagogue and begins to preach there to, it says, the Jews and the devout Greeks, those uh, Gentiles in the city who had grown tired of the polytheistic paganism around them and were sympathetic to this monotheistic message. And he begins to preach to them there. He goes in with the gospel Acts 17, 2 and 3 says, reasoning from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul's was not a ministry of gimmicks or entertainment, but gospel truth. And the result is that some of the Jews in that synagogue in that city believe and a great number Luke tells us of devout Gentiles and not a few leading women so even the important people in the city are are beginning to be converted and a church is born and starts garnering attention the jealousy of the Jews is aroused they find they go to the marketplace and they find some some troublemakers, those who are just looking for a fight. They stir them up and soon this riotous mob is formed in Thessalonica and they go searching for Paul and his team. They go to the place where Paul was staying, Jason's house, it says. 
They couldn't find Paul and them there, so they drag Paul's host out into the streets along with some of the other brothers, and they take them in Acts 17 before the city council. And what they say, an accusation against these men, reveals the trouble that this church has been born into. Acts 17, 6-7, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So these Jews are playing really right into the idolatry that's at the heart of the city, saying essentially to them, if you don't squash this thing, what will Rome do when they hear? They don't serve Caesar. They serve another king. This message that they're coming with, it, it's a threat to you all, to your freedoms, your economic stability, your positions of power. And of course, it's not really true, not in the sense that they're implying, but it is true in another sense. The gospel is threatening, isn't it? It's threatening to our self-sufficiency, our autonomy, our desire for self-rule, and it's certainly a, a threat to the idols of our hearts. And so this church is beginning to grow, and there are worrying signs for the city council and people from different walks of life beginning to take up their crosses and follow this so-called king, identifying with him, following even when it costs them money and freedom and position. James Grant says in his commentary, this message was going against the very culture of that city. The church would have been tolerated as long as it did not disrupt the social order. But as soon as the church stepped into the middle of life, as soon as the church started tinkering with life in the city, people became nervous and worried. Does that sound to you familiar? We live in a, a culture where more and more religion is becoming a private matter. You can believe just about whatever you want to believe, but keep it to yourself, please. And we're learning, and I believe that we might begin to learn more and more in the years and decades to follow the cost of holding dear the gospel, this message of the gospel, the ethical implications of the gospel, and our mandate to share it with other people increasingly is going to set us at odds with the society around us. Are we ready for this? There is no choice in the city of Thessalonica for Paul except to leave the city at this point. He's only been with them for a little while, but he has to move on. And so he goes to the, the city of Berea. It says in Acts that the Jews there were more noble and received what Paul shared with eagerness and searching, they tested what Paul said by the Scriptures. And many are saved in that city. But the, the Jews in Thessalonica hear that Paul is preaching in Berea. And so they come to harass him there as well, stirring up another mob. And so they quickly hurried out of that town. And if you'll look on the map again, they head down from, from Macedonia down into still modern-day Greece, but the, the province of Achaia. Paul goes to Athens. Remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens and he's walking through that city. And he's overwhelmed, isn't he? 
by the, the moral chaos, the idolatry around him. They have shrines on every street corner, even one to an unknown God. Such was their worship in that place. We'll just cover our bases in our manipulation of the gods. We know in Athens, Paul, he gave his famous speech at the Areopagus where he tries to convince them who this unknown God is, the one true and living God, the one they didn't know. And some of them are converted while others laugh him off the stage. Well, after this, Paul goes from Athens to Corinth to round off this tour of Macedonia and Achaia. And by the time he, he gets to Corinth, he's in a, a certain state. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, he's speaking and writing to the Corinthians, reminding of them, them of how he came to the city. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The mission has taken its toll on Paul and on his team. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, overwhelming moral chaos, idolatry all around. This is Paul's life and his service to the Lord. And what I find amazing is that this is how the gospel spread in that region. His passage through Macedonia and Achaia was response after door after door being shut in their faces. Persecution and opposition forcing them from place to place. It wasn't smooth sailing. So often when we are engaged in kingdom work or in gospel ministry, that's all we want. We want assurances that it'll go smoothly. I'll take on a ministry as long as it won't be too disruptive of my life or too taxing. When opposition comes, well, that's the, the sign that God must be closing the door and letting me give up. Or oh, I won't even try if it seems like my efforts are going to be met with resistance. Paul and his team were not put off by hardships. They could have complained. Why is this so difficult? Why does it have to be so hard? But rather, and because they chose rather courage, consistency, faith, for this reason the gospel spread throughout the region. And we have today letters like First. Thessalonians that have been a blessing to the church for more than 2,000 years. Paul lived with faith in the power of the gospel. And he knew opposition is not a sign of failure. And it's not a reason to give up. And ultimately, Paul lived happy for a particular trade-off. He lived heavily burdened and troubled. And always under pressure. But he lived a life of maximum glory to the Father. And our problem today, very often in the church, is that we don't want to make that same trade. We don't want to give up comfort or security. We don't want to do difficult things, even if it means greater glory to God. And our families, our church, and often our devotional lives are poorer for it. One of Paul's greatest burdens he speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is his daily anxiety for the churches. Every day, this burden for the church. The church in Thessalonica was one such church. Paul had only been afforded a short time with them. There was still much that he needed to teach them. 
and he had left them in this boiling cauldron of opposition and persecution. And so his question is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the church? Would the pressure of the world fizzle out this fledgling church? Would a lack of knowledge destroy them? He shares in chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians that he's, he had been worried, would Satan bring their work to nothing? Would they be tempted by compromise and comfort and returning to the city mold? Or would they, as we sang this morning, as the author of Hebrews says, by faith desire a better country, a heavenly one, a city prepared by God? Paul is worried about the church. He speaks in chapter 2 and verse 17 and 18 of his desperation to get back to the Thessalonians, but being hindered somehow by satanic opposition. In chapter 3, he, he speaks of, it seems that Timothy, Timothy had been sent back to the church in Thessalonica when they got to Athens. Timothy had been sent back to teach them more, to establish the church, and to bring a report to Paul. And so when Paul moved on to Corinth, he waited there and eventually a report came from Timothy, a report that occasioned the writing of this letter. So this letter was written when Paul was busy planting the Corinthian church, AD 50 or 51. It's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Only James and probably Galatians is earlier than 1 Thessalonians. Because Timothy brought back a report Rather than succumbing to persecution and apostasy, the church has been faithful in following Jesus. And so Paul writes because he has reason to rejoice. He's in Corinth trying to plant this church in a difficult area, challenging people. The Thessalonians are still on his heart and his mind, and Timothy brings news to warm his heart. And so he writes to them. There are going to be some things that he will correct, as in every letter, but predominantly, this letter is positive. It might be the most positive letter that Paul wrote. He expresses his gratitude for them. They are an answer to his prayers. And Paul lives constantly with this dual experience. It is the dual experience of everybody who pours time and energy and concern and money, not just into earthly things, but into kingdom things. Those who seek first the kingdom of God, this is your lot in life, always burdened, but always rejoicing. When you spend your life on more than just the frivolous things, on weighty things that you know are bigger than you, that sometimes you feel powerless to build and to change, you are burdened, but you also have a front row seat to see the, the power of the gospel and the glory of God on display. Does this dual experience mark your life? Concern for the church and joy in what God does through the gospel. Oh, that there would be more of this concern in the church. This Thessalonian church stood on the, the shoulders of these faithful and courageous men and their efforts. But more than that, number two, we learn that they are a church rooted in grace. They're rooted in grace. We see this from Paul's greeting to them. How much attention do you pay to the, the greetings of your letters to people? 
I, I, I struggle, I agonize over letters, and usually it's just how to open and how to close the letter. You know, those pithy sayings that we sometimes have at the end of our letters, or we sometimes say, dear so-and-so, do we really mean that? Are they really dear? That word dear means beloved. Um, sometimes if you're more familiar with the group, you are afforded the luxury of just being able to say hi or, or hey, everyone. Most of our letters don't carry the, the weight of meaning in those greetings that Paul's letter does. If I receive a letter from Sheree or from my kids like this morning, they'll begin from Sheree usually something like darling or my love. That's meaningful, isn't it? It speaks of possession, that I, I belong, I'm chosen, that I matter to somebody. And that's what we see here in Paul's greeting, that same me meaning. He does follow custom to a point. It was customary to identify yourself as the writer and then the people you're writing to and then to have some form of greeting. And we see all of those elements here in the letter. He says, Paul, Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, and Timothy. This is Paul and the, the co-founders of that church. To the church of the Thessalonians, there's nothing unusual about this yet. But then what he says, he says something else that reveals the foundation for all of Paul's rejoicing. He says to them, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is unique. And that's packed with meaning. It's a life-defining address. Paul is telling them who they are. He speaks of their place and their security. He identifies their physical location, but more than that, their spiritual one as well. They're in Thessalonica, but more than that. And the reason Paul can rejoice is that they are in God the Father. They are in Jesus Christ. You are united to God by the Spirit in Jesus Christ, he's saying, in Him, you're under His protection. You're the apple of His eye underneath His, ga his gaze. Thessalonians, you are His. Is there anywhere that you would rather be, Christian? And Paul goes on to give thanks for them because of the report that he had received. Timothy's report was, there is genuine fruit of salvation in the life of this church. It is evident and I've seen it. And so Paul will rest and rejoice because despite Satan's scheming, despite the persecution and the obstacles that they face, Paul knows the truth. If it is God who began the work, it is God who will see that work through to completion. This is the foundation of the church. You see, as, as important as Paul's toiling and labor and obeying and planting were it must be the miraculous work of God his own hand through the spirit that gives birth to the church the true church and Paul knows this to be true about them and this is the reason he can get up after each beating and carry on going it's the truth that God is accomplishing his purposes and the fragility of Paul's ministry. He is fragile and there's plenty that men can do to them, but there's nothing that they can do to him apart from what God allows. And there's nothing that they can do to him that would stop the gospel from spreading. 
Nothing that would stop God's kingdom purposes in the building of His church. That's why Paul can sing in the jail cell. Who knows what God is doing, but He's doing something. I saw this message from a a friend this week who is in ICU at the moment with COVID. And while he's in ICU, his daughter is in a, a very serious car accident. And his message is, Lord, what is the Lord doing in our lives? We don't know, but we can trust him still. And we love him still because we know he is good. Why am I in jail? Paul might have thought. I don't know. Maybe today the jailer is going to get saved. God will multiply my efforts. He will leverage my situation for His glory. Is that your hope? What are the circumstances that, that you face or that you're in today that cause you to want to give up hope or to take a step back from the ministry? To stop driving and stop pushing and give up? Why not instead cry out to a God who is still good today God, leverage what I'm going through. Leverage the difficulty the church is going through for your glory. Build your kingdom here. And use the brick and mortar of my fragile but still devoted life. Paul says to them, grace to you and peace. Because he knows this is the foundation of the church. It's what roots the church and keeps them standing. It is the security of our church as well. It's the promise of the fruit of our labor. Grace, God's grace, it summarizes the saving work of God through Christ Jesus and the power of the Spirit in the lives of believers. Are you rooted in grace today? J.R. Packer says this, Grace is God's love in action towards people who merited the opposite of that love. That's the definition of grace. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Do you know that to be true of yourself? Grace means God sending His only Son to the cross to descend into hell so we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. Every iota of peace that I have today comes through the grace of God. Peace through grace. That's the order. Grace is the fountain and peace is the flow in my life. Peace with God the Father through grace. Is that true of you? We are gravely mistaken when we try to reverse that order, when we think I have to create peace with the Father through my effort or through good works or through faith in order to receive grace. No, we know that the blood of Christ has been given by the grace of God and that makes peace with God. And then the fruit of that, the fruit of that peace is what Paul gets report of as evident in the life of this church, the fruit of salvation. Number three, we see a church that is sustained by gospel hope. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3, We give thanks, Paul says, to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll come, Lord willing, back to this prayer of thankfulness 
from next week where it continues. But I just want you to see this morning Paul's emphasis on hope, which is an emphasis in this letter. There are three fruits here of salvation, evident in the church. He says first, a work of faith, meaning that the work that must follow genuine faith. Genuine faith in Christ will lead to good works. He says the evidence in their lives is the labor of love. That word labor means strenuous and, and difficult effort, persistent effort, but an effort that flows out of love. We love God and we love one another because He first loved us and that love is planted in our hearts. And he says, thirdly, there is in this church a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance, persistence, and courage in the Christian life, they come not from some inner resolve or some personal strength. They come from hope. They come from hope in Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. This is a common triad, isn't it, that we see in New Testament letters. Faith, hope, and love. We know, and maybe you're thinking primarily of that passage in uh, 1 Corinthians, trying to encourage greater character in the lives of that church. Paul writes to them saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I found it interesting that Paul doesn't follow that same order, that same pattern here in 1 Thessalonians. He mentions faith, love, and hope. Because Paul writes to emphasize for each church what that church needs. To the divided Christians in Corinth, Paul stressed love. Whereas here, these believers who are harassed and persecuted, Paul stresses hope. And that's what he's going to do in this letter. It's a hope that they're clinging to by the grace of God. And it's a hope that Paul writes to strengthen them in. It's at the heart of this letter. It appears that because maybe because Paul had to leave them early or else maybe there was some kind of false teaching in the church, they were a little bit confused about the second coming of Christ. And that confusion threatened to steal that hope. And Paul is going to write to correct that misunderstanding. It's interesting, every chapter in First Thessalonians speaks a little bit about the, the second coming. And it, it talks about how we are to live as Christians in the, light, in the light of the second coming of Christ. What way does it affect our lives? That's what Paul is going to encourage them in. And my hope, HBC, because we, we face a challenge in, in the world today. Hard times that are, are brought on by common struggles to, to everybody who lives to see these days. But also as a church, how do we still do what the church is supposed to do. How do we go and, and be obedient to the Great Commission in a, in a time of face masks and lockdown and isolation? We want in the trials that we are facing for our message to be to the world, the sufficiency of Christ, that He is good enough, that He is great even now. And we want in a culture of diminishing patience towards the truth of the Bible, we want still to be faithful to the gospel message, faithful to our God. And I believe First Thessalonians is going to encourage us in this. 
And so in closing today, I just want to share or ask this question. Ask this question and apply this to your heart and answer honestly. Is it my great desire that God would use this season of my life, whatever you are facing today, is it your desire that God would use this season for His glory and for the kingdom? Is that the driving desire in your heart? It was the driving motivation for Paul. It was for the rest of his life. He writes to Timothy at the end of his race. In first, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 to 12, he says, Do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Saying, Timothy, carry on. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Then he says in verse 12, This gospel is the reason I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And church, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We are jars of clay, yes, but we've been entrusted with this precious message. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe that through it, God will build His church? Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the different ways that it, it challenges us. We thank You for its power on display in different ways and we really are leaning on You in this season. Lord, it is, it's difficult after the momentum we've built over the last few months, to now have to come together with this restriction. But we know, Father, that the gospel is not restricted, that the kingdom and your work in building the kingdom will not be thwarted. We know and are hoping and trusting and praying and asking that you would do that work here in Hillcrest, that you would use us our weakness and our fragile efforts, that you would make us bold and courageous. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to yearn more than anything else, that we would be used for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.